0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Alright, good morning. Uh, kids. We have Elevate and we also have EGC this morning so uh, first and second grade can head out the back here and then third fourth and fifth can go this way and if somebody wants to grab one of the doors on the way out and we continue on. Uh, a couple things real quick first next week uh, at the week after Easter is two fairly big events the men's retreat uh, and then the resurrection party, and I, I want to make a clarification—not uh, a clarification, a yeah, clarification. Um, so the, the resurrection party and the men's retreat—they they will, they will both have, they will both have beer at them. They will have alcoholic beverages at them, uh, and the design of that is to be enjoyed and stewarded well as a gift from God. And yet, um, they, they, we don't want that to be an obstacle. We don't want that to be something that is a temptation. We don't want that. Uh, in anybody's life to be something that is abused and used for escape. And if that's a struggle for you, I want, to, I want to invite you, if you are able, to still come and celebrate and be with us. And there will be people with you at, from Refuge uh, who will walk with you if you need accountability, if you need help, if you need somebody to just be there and walk with you. We are celebrating this as a body. Uh, and so we, um, we want to make sure in all of these things that we enjoy the good gifts of God in good stewardship uh, and... Enjoy them well without abusing his good gifts uh in, in that way. So um that the menstruat, the the uh the resurrection party, um this is open to anyone and everyone, and we want to celebrate well uh the good gifts of God. Cool? All right, good. Uh we're gonna continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, and then after this week, we're gonna take a little bit of a break. Next week's kind of a big deal. Um So next week we will celebrate Easter, and just so you know, if you've never celebrated Easter at Refuge, man, here's what we do on Easter Sunday. You ready for this? The exact same thing we do every other week. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. There will not be fireworks, there will not be giveaways, there will not be a light show. We will celebrate the goodness of Jesus, and I will use my tired joke that I use every year, I will wear a suit and tie, because I wear ties for, you guys probably know this, for weddings, funerals, and resurrections, uh, is when I wear a suit. Um, and, and, and we will celebrate well. It is glorious, um, but, but it'll look a lot like, and it'll be exciting and fun. And then we're going to take a little bit of a break uh, in uh, April from Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll get back at it, all right? So now, now you're all caught up on everything you need to know for uh, April. Alright, um, <clears throat> October 17th, 2005, Allison and I uh, put our then two, just, we just had two kids, two young kids down to bed and settled in to watch the last part of a Cardinal playoff game against the Houston Astros. Cards were down three games to one and I find it best to be a sports pessimist, alright? Uh, being a Mizzou fan my whole life has trained me, expect the worst and then there's no way they could disappoint you. Except Mizzou keeps finding ways to disappoint you. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, but uh, as a Cardinal fan, I found it best to be pessimistic. So I was pessimistic and, and lo and behold, Cardinals were up 2-1 to one going into the seventh inning and it looked, it looked all right. Uh, bottom of the seventh inning, Lance Berkman, who would later be a Cardinal, Lance Berkman hits a three-run homer over the cheap uh, left-field fence in Houston. I have my bitternesses, all right? Just give me those. Um, and uh, and they, go up three, uh, they go up four to two. And it goes into the bottom of the ninth. Cardinals are down three games to one. They're down two runs uh, going into the bottom of the ninth against one of the best closers in the game, Brad Lidge. So the first batter of the ninth inning strikes out pretty quickly, pretty easily. But the second batter of the ninth inning strikes out pretty quickly, pretty easily. I don't think Brad Lidge has even broken a sweat. Trey on the bed quickly turns off the TV, tosses the remote, who cares? Uh, and, And a pretty pouty, petty voice says to my wife, no point in watching this. Let's just go to bed. Uh, if you have ever pouted at the outcome of a sporting event, act like you didn't care, act like you knew it was going to happen, who cares anyway, and just whatever. I'm not even mad. And you've, and, and that like so petty. Um, I just want to tell you, you're not alone. We have covered this passage. We covered this passage last week from the perspective of ethics, uh, of Jesus uh, the Ethics of Jesus and How He Operates. This week we're going to cover this um, from a more theological perspective. The implications of what Jesus says in these four verses. And these are probably some of the most shocking verses that exist. Uh, they're confusing. They're difficult to understand. And, and in all the words of Jesus, what he says here, I have to think he left the crowds around him pretty stunned. In fact, at the, end, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that, the, that the, the, the people around him were filled with awe that he taught as one who had authority. And I don't think that awe or wonder, I don't think that was like, wow. I think it was more like, uh, like probably felt potentially like lightning could strike at any time. Who does this guy think he is? And Jesus is just starting to give us a a glorious conclusion to this grand story that began actually in Genesis chapter 1. Um, And he's going to tell us what he has come to do, what that's going to look like, what that means for the people of God, who is going to be the people of God, what will happen to the law that God made known to his people, uh, that there's going to be a massive shift in the law and what it means what it means to be righteous. What it means to actually be obedient to the law. And that's a whole lot to cover in four verses. And yet, he, he lays some serious groundwork. So this week, uh, we're going to look at Jesus and his relationship to the law. What does he say here? What is the law and its relationship to righteousness? And then just a little preview of the, of the week to come. All right? So Jesus starts off. And he says this. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you. By the way, that truly, when Jesus says these words, gives this emphasis. That is almost him saying, thus says the Lord. For in truth, I tell you. I said this. I, Jesus, not me. In truth, uh, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Hebrew scriptures uh, were not called the Bible in New Testament times. The Hebrew scriptures were called the law and the prophets. They weren't called the Old Testament. They were the only testament at that point. Uh, It was was called the Law and the Prophets. And you also had the wisdom literature that we talked about last week, the ethics of Jesus comprising all of these things and then more. Um, There were also additional rabbinical teachings on how to interpret the laws. Uh, And apparently there had been some accusation against Jesus that he was coming to end this religion. He had come to destroy the law. Or had come to minimize the law. Or had come to just do away with it or abolish it altogether. And perhaps start a new religion. But this is not at all what Jesus had come to do. Jesus has no desire at all to undo the law that God has given. He wants to help us understand it. He he brings it back into its proper interpretation from what it had been turned into. Um, but also what he's going to do is he says he's come to fulfill it. He wants to complete the requirements that the law demands. So he hasn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And in doing this, Jesus affirms the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus affirms the Old Testament. Uh, He has not come to take away the Hebrew scriptures or to render them useless or to say don't pay attention to them. He has come to complete them. To shine light on them. This is what they have meant the whole time. This is who they are pointing to. The Hebrew scriptures are ultimately about me. And if you could imagine, that might have been a bit shocking to these people. Uh, One of these things that I did during the pandemic uh, uh, was I did a, a Bible study on the book of Genesis with my rabbi friend over Zoom. And um, and there was a lot of, uh, so I, I kind of assumed, you know, she was a rabbi. I kind of assumed we both had the, basically the same view of the Old Testament. We just had, we had 27 more books that, that shed some light on it and give us a little bit different perspective. But for the most part, we see the Old Testament the same. We just have Jesus and you're still waiting for the Messiah. And um, I want to tell you that that's not the case. That's not the case. Um, we got into Genesis 3 and how Adam rebels. Adam eats uh, the fruit. And I said, so what is your take? Like, how do you view the fall here, the separation of man and God? And she was like, what do you, what do you mean? I was like, you know, the, the fall. How there's a separation between man and God. She said, what are you talking about? <laughs> that probably happened five times. Um, we see that very differently. The New Testament sheds a whole lot of light that I, that I didn't realize. And what she, what she saw is not a separation of man and God, but a natural uh, Non-knowledge, non-obedience, like an, a, like an infant kid would normally look at their parent. They're not mature yet. They don't know how to obey. They don't know uh, to do these things. So it was just a natural progression of the way things would normally operate. Um, and uh, they don't know how to do everything yet. They're young. They're immature. And we had credi- incredibly different views and so from that then the view goes forth of how humanity is on a progression to keep learning more and more as we mature how to do things better how to operate better how to care for ourselves how to usher in heaven or, or potentially maybe a messianic age and so we we would continue to labor and labor and labor to bring about some kind of heaven on earth. The harmony of humanity. Uh, and, And that sounds wonderful. If I didn't know so many humans, myself included, And now, listen, there's a lot of different views within Judaism, and uh, just like Christianity. Uh, and her, her hope was looking almost exclusively at the work to be done here and now. Now, one of her critiques about Christians and the, many of the Christians that she's met was that Christians seem to get so focused on heaven that they're like, we don't even need to worry about what's here and now. Well, why do we even care about what's here and now? And I thought, that's a valid critique. It's a valid critique. Uh, I offered to her perhaps a different view, a a different uh, Christian theology, that actually, and the one that I'm convicted by, that heaven, the idea of Jesus ushering in this kingdom, should not make us care less about what is here and now, but actually more deeply about what is here and now. If we are preparing this world for her coming king, then we ought to labor with a lot more intensity and a lot more hope and a lot more uh, gusto. We should not at all. But at the same time, we are confident that not all of our hope is put in getting everybody to agree and be like we are. We labor with confidence that one day, just like we talked about last week, um, What Jesus says here completely changes the story to see how different we saw it. If we were to look at the entire Old Testament without the insight of the life and ministry of Jesus, that's probably how we would see it. If we were religious people, we're just going to continue doing this. If the Old Testament teaches us nothing else, it's we got to keep going because we're messed up. But eventually, we're going to get, we're going to learn from this, and we're going to learn from this, and we're going to learn from this. That's one perspective. And uh, now, at this point, uh, just so you know, just a little background on on, uh, where some in in Jewish tradition uh, are at this point uh, in belief, there are many Jews who are no longer looking for a Messiah in person, a person to come. They are looking for the fullness of human progression, again, the Messianic age. And a lot of that belief actually stems from the fact that if the, the view of the Messiah coming, which we've talked about before, the Messiah should end all wars, right? The Messiah should make peace over all the earth. And if Jesus was the Messiah, then how come there's still wars? And how come there's still this stuff going on? Hear me. I think that's a misunderstanding of, of what Christ has come to do, but I get that thought. If Jesus, like one day he will when he returns, but I, I get that. Um, and so now it's kind of this laboring toward a messianic age, uh, for human achievement and harmony. And I want to tell you, I have plenty of disagreements with my uh, rabbi friend and friends. um, And uh, we have had some amazing discussions that are really, really helpful for me, that I appreciate their willingness to engage. uh, And I, but I also want to say this, we have these disagreements. Uh, I love my friend dearly. I have zero tolerance for anti-Semitism. I have zero tolerance for anything that would speak ill of her or any of the Jewish people whatsoever. Uh, I don't get how Christians get there. Uh, That is not Christianity. Uh, That is, well, the religion, maybe, I don't know. That's not following Jesus in any way, shape or form. So uh, that's just something that I want to throw out there. One of our discussions we had, uh, I mentioned, now, this is going to be ironic, I know. One of these discussions we were talking about, and I brought up a statement uh, by uh, Martin Luther. Yeah, yeah. Don't bring up Martin Luther to a rabbi. In his older age, Martin Luther said some horribly nasty anti-Semitic things. Um, So... I, made that, I went out in front of you and made that mistake on your behalf. Don't bring up Martin Luther. All right, check that here. So the statement that I brought up by Martin Luther um, was he, supposedly he made a comment. Like, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? And he supposedly said, I would plant a tree. And there's a couple of reasons that he said this. The first, I would continue to do the work and the labor. Even if Jesus was coming back, I wouldn't stop laboring to make the world beautiful and and prepare the kingdom for this coming king. I would keep doing it. I would care more about the here and now. But then the other reason he said it is because when the king returns, imagine what that tree will look like in its fullness. Now, my friend, who's a bit pessimistic on the Messiah part uh, of scripture, She said, yeah, the rabbinic tradition also has a statement kind of like that. Uh, If you are gardening and somebody says, hey, quick, the Messiah is coming, that you would continue gardening. She said, because at this point, probably it's not the Messiah. (laughs) Which I thought was very funny. For followers of Jesus, this moment, this statement by Jesus, it's pivotal. Jesus doesn't come to tell us to forget the world now and focus on heaven, that one day we'll get the heck out of here. In fact, what he does is because he fulfills the law, he frees us actually to love deeper, to bear witness of the hope of heaven now. To labor for St. Charles as it is in heaven. Hope, justice, righteousness, truth, all of those things. Jesus is pretty adamant here that the law is not to be touched and it should not be discarded. But if Jesus is who he says he is and he does what he claims he's going to do here, then the law has to be reinterpreted from where it had gotten at that point. One perspective, my friends, looks at the Hebrew scriptures with the lens of trying to keep pushing forward. We've got to continue to get better, we've got to continue to learn. My perspective looks at the Hebrew scriptures as the story of no matter how much we try, we had every opportunity. And no matter how much we try, we can't do it. We are not, in fact, enough. We are not the heroes of our own story. We need a rescuer. We need someone to come and fulfill this on our behalf. And boy, is there some great news in this passage, if you see it from that perspective so much that it changes the whole story. So, right after I threw my remote, across the bed in a pout, my lovely wife, very gently, said, come on, honey. Let, don't, don't give up yet. Let's at least watch the end of the game. Let's just turn it back on. So eyes firmly rolled to the back of my head, I turned the TV back on. Whatever, whatever. We'll watch the end. Two outs in the ninth inning, nobody on base, down by two runs against Brad Lidge. It's not likely, but whatever. David Eckstein gets base hit. All right, you just you're making it worse. (laughs) Right? Jim Edmonds walks. Okay. Now it's getting interesting, because up up steps to the plate, El Hombre, one Albert Pujols. (laughs) That's right. First pitch is a nasty slider, and Pujols looks bad on it. But then comes the second pitch, and a loud and raucous human fan base, Houston fan base, is all of a sudden, Silent, silent, no doubt whatsoever. Supposedly on the flight to St. Louis the next day, the Houston catcher Brad Osmus got over the intercom when they were in mid-flight and got on the airplane intercom and said, if I can direct your attention to the right side of the plane, you might notice the ball that Pujols hit last night <laughs> as it is on its second orbit around the Earth. I mean, he crushed it, crushed it, a three-run home run that radically changed that story from a typical loss to one of the most memorable hits in all of baseball history. And a legend was born. Absolutely amazing. Jesus has not come, and I'm not, I'm not comparing poo holes to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus has not come to start a new story. He has come to fulfill the story that God has already been telling. And how does he do this? He fulfills the law and the prophets. But even here, to understand what he does to fulfill the law and the prophets, we need to understand and get some clarification on what that means. We have to understand, what was the goal of the law and the prophets? Um, And we can get into the weeds on this one, but but we're not going to, I hope. Uh, Last year we went through Deuteronomy and we saw that the way we saw the ways and the reasons by which God gave us the law and how He set it up, the law ultimately is not meant to be this checkbox of things you do, or things you don't do. Every our laws today, that's how they're set up. The speed limit is seventy-ish, and that's how that is set up, right? Checkbox, uh, or close to the box, right? That's not the way that God set the law up. Um, It looks different. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. The Ten Commandments, when God gives the Ten Commandments, it is is a, a wedding ceremony. This is an invitation to a relationship. I will be your God, and you will be my people. God and his people binding themselves to each other in covenant faithfulness. The law was meant to give God's people the ways and the guides to obey him. God said, this is what I desire from you. And the response should have been, okay, now we know how to obey and honor you, how to live up our side of this covenant. And instead what the law does is, is it reveals all the ways that we're not obeying him. And how we're not trusting him. And how we're not being faithful in our covenant relationship to him. So what Jesus is going to do, he's not simply going to check all the boxes. That's not what we mean by when Jesus came to fulfill the law. What he is going to do, he is going to be completely dependent, trusting, faithful to God the Father. He is going to be the people that the law was designed to form and shape us to be. He is going to live out a perfect relationship with God. And he doesn't do this. I know we say, so he doesn't do this so that we don't have to obey the law. Hey, Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf, so we get to do whatever we want. That's not how that works. Um, He doesn't accomplish it so that we can disobey it. He does it so that our violation of the law is not held against us that we are now free to obey. And what he's going to show us in the next section is we're free, and we're going to take a few weeks before we get to all how this has worked out, he's going to show us just how deep that obedience goes, that it's more than just do this and don't do this. So verse 20, Jesus says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is how this weaves into righteousness. Righteousness had become a checklist. Do these things, don't do these things, and that makes you righteous. And we'll set up some more things for us to do that further disseminates between the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, And listen, we like to, uh, if you've ever been a Christian, you've ever heard a pastor or use yourselves yourself, have used Pharisee as a bad word, right? Has everybody done that? Okay, listen. Pharisee is not a bad word. The way the Pharisees looked at the law... That is what what made it bad. And not all of them, but a lot of them. Pharisees were actually the ones that wanted to preserve the Torah. Pharisees are the ones that said we we should take the scriptures literally. We should really strive to understand the Hebrew scriptures. They wanted us to stick with the Bible. They had good theology. But they were also the most offended at the idea that this was a relationship and not a checkbox. Because a checkbox is safer. It's easier. It doesn't require dependence or vulnerability. It requires checking a box. Do these things and don't do these things. A relationship requires more. It requires love, dependence, vulnerability. Um, And how does that work out? John Piper, his illustration at the beginning of the book uh, Desiring God is still one of the, I think, one of the best illustrations uh, that I've seen on this. He said, if he were to bring home flowers to his wife, when she asked why he brought home flowers and he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, because I'm a good husband and dutiful and I know that this is what good husbands are supposed to do is bring home flowers to their wife. Right? Melts your heart, doesn't it? For him, and as he's about to get, you know, whooped up on. And actually, ironically, I could see John Piper doing that. Uh, (laughs) But if when she asked, he said something to the effect, I know how flowers make you smile, and I want you to smile. I know flowers make you feel seen and cared for and thought about, and I want you to feel seen and cared for and thought about. And most of all, because I love you and because I want to give you the things that you enjoy and appreciate because I love you. Which response sounds better? Which response is the heartbeat of the law? God's desire from his people is not just that we have this list of do's and don'ts and we do these things and don't do these things. And I'll tell you why I'm a Christian, because I vote this way, I look this way, I don't drink, smoke, or chew or date the girls that do. Here's all the things I do, and that's what makes me a Christian. The goal the whole time has been relationship. And now because Christ has become the law, we don't simply follow the rules. We follow Jesus. And what we're going to see here in a few weeks is that following Jesus, it's not like the rules are just out the door. The rules have much deeper implications, and it's far more than just don't murder. It's don't be angry at other people. And not only that, but it's to see people and to love and forgive them. It's not just a matter of don't commit adultery. It's how we're called to see and value women as image bearers what it looks like to see others with dignity and worth and value and not as objects and we're going to at the end of every one of these sections that we're about to get into this you've heard it said but I tell you at the end of each one of these sermons we're going to get to the end and we're going to see the law is even more than we thought it's going to condemn us even more and our sin is even worse than we thought because okay I've lusted ugh and the call to obedience goes even deeper. And then our disobedience is far worse. And we're going to end each one of these and go, then what's my hope? And if you're asking that question, we're on the right track. God's desire for his people is not to check the boxes and to do the list of do's and don'ts. His desire for his people has always been I will be your God. You will be my people. Trust me. Listen to me. Do what I say. It's good. Become who I made you to be. And because of our sin and rebellion, the law could not make us want to trust him more. We need more than just the law, we need new hearts, we need forgiveness. And forgiveness is costly. Last year, I read a blog. It was getting ready for Easter. I read a blog from a, it was a very progressive pastor um, uh, talking about the, uh, the different atonement theories, substitutionary atonement theories. And he was talking about uh, forgiveness. And his sentiment was, it shouldn't be hard to forgive people. Just forgive. And he said some people got mad at him because he forgot to follow up. And so he apologized to them. And they, they, were, and they said, and they, they forgave him See, it was was easy. You just forgive. And my thought was how easy this man's life must have been for forgiveness to be that easy. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been lied about or lied to? Has anyone ever cost you part of your life or the life of a family member? that you would just say, ah, you just need to forgive, it's easy. I question if you actually love the people in your life or if you've ever actually had to forgive something that is brutally hard to forgive. Because forgiveness is costly. It sounds great. You see need to forgive. But come on, man. Are you kidding me? For us to be forgiven and to be reconciled to God is costly. And as we head into this week, we're going to see the events that unfold of what our forgiveness costs in the final week of Jesus' life. And your assignment for this week is simple. Pay attention. look at the diff- there's, there's numerous blogs. We'll put something on the, on the app that you can follow along in the day-to-day of what Jesus does in the final week of his life. But just to pay attention of the, of the events of the last week of Jesus' life. And how costly forgiveness is. Sermon on the Mount fulfills this prophecy in Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And this is what forgiveness cost. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace. And with his wounds, we are what, class? Healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And why would Jesus endure this? Why in the world would he go through this? It's not to check the boxes. That's not what it means by fulfilling the law but because from the very beginning, God has actually loved his people. We sing songs all the time. In a, in a pop love song, it would seem presumptuous. Uh, for, like, if I wrote a pop song, it would seem presumptuous to sing songs about how much my baby loves me. Right? Um, And it would seem normal that I should sing how much I love my baby. But in songs of worship to God, it's actually presumptuous for us to sing about how much we love God. What is not presumptuous, what is certain, is to sing about how much God has loved us. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin. Upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life i know that it is finished one more i will not boast in anything no gifts I've Jesus, thank you that you have come to fulfill the law. That it no longer stands to condemn us, but it does still stand to guide us. Because you're not up there making it hard and just saying, try your best. You give us a guide. What pleases you. How the world is designed. How we were meant to be. And it is impossible for us to do. And so you have fulfilled that on our behalf. What incredible mercy and grace. I pray this week as we look at the final events of your life on this earth that we are taken aback that we are in awe that you could love a a wretch like me and that's not that I would stand there and look down on myself and just totally pile on this is to stand in awe and wonder that I could be loved this profoundly and this deeply. It changes everything. Make it known in our hearts for those who, are love, you, who love you and who are, who are wrestling this out, I pray that you would bring peace. For those who are trying to figure this out and what, is, what, do I, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to have hope? What does it mean to trust in anything? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring life out of death give us hope to navigate this world grieving because it's not the way it should be but yet hopeful because it won't stay this way we ask your blessing in our time of response in Jesus name amen building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world that's the mission of refuge church for more information visit us online at seekrefuge.net.